When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When Congress passed the multi-billion dollar Chips and Science Act last summer with rare bipartisan support, the bill grabbed headlines. People say it's the biggest jump into industrial policy since like the 1950s. That's Don Clark. He's been covering the tech industry and writing about chips, the silicon kind, not the potato kind, for decades. It won't at all solve all the problems that are out there about U.S. reliance on foreign chips, but it's a big step. Tiny semiconductor chips are essentially the brains powering our modern lives. We use them all day long, in our coffee pots, our cars, and of course, our cell phones. But these tiny chips also hold the key to immense economic and government power. Businesses like Apple rely on them to keep their edge in the market. And the U.S. government needs them too. Those little silicone wafers help create advanced weaponry and are crucial to national security. Even in a super partisan era, chips are viewed as too important to become political fodder. Congress was on the defensive when the bill passed, worried about the country's reliance on foreign chip manufacturers, particularly in Taiwan, which makes nearly all of the most advanced chips out there. That used to be fine, well, sort of. But the pandemic gummed up the supply chain, and maybe more worrying, there's the China issue. It was a rare thing because it was a bipartisan effort. Both uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans agreed, and that's largely because they're worried about China, they're worried about the threat to Taiwan, they're worried about the reliance of the U.S. on chips from Taiwan. China claims Taiwan is, well, part of China. And if the country were to, say, launch an offensive against Taiwan, the U.S. chip supply would be endangered or cut off. So the idea behind the CHIPS Act was to reduce our reliance on foreign countries for chip making. The Biden administration is offering roughly $76 billion in grants, tax credits, and subsidies to incentivize manufacturers to do what's called reshoring, essentially bringing factories to the states. And it's kind of an interesting kind of change in industrial policy. It used to be just the federal government just built things. But in this kind of a policy, they're using, you know, public money to spur private money. Mm-hmm. So, and the reason they're doing it that way is because that's what other governments are doing around the world, in Asia and other places. And shipmakers are responding. Since 2020, more than 35 companies, some of the biggest players in this space, have pledged nearly $200 billion for manufacturing projects related to chips according to the Semiconductor Industry Association. The idea is to even out the playing field. It's about 30% more expensive as with, with no government support to build a chip factory in the U.S. as it is abroad because of the subsidies and other factors. So they're trying to basically even it out. So if you're Intel, it's essentially neutral as to where you build your plant. So today on the show, the U.S. is all in on bringing chip manufacturing home. The push has been compared to the space race during the Cold War. Chips played a role there too, by the way. But the chip industry is among the most globalized businesses out there. Can the U.S. really pull this off? 
I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. So I guess we should really back up and just drill down into like, (laughs) what are semiconductor chips? Like explain them to me like I'm five years old because all I know is that they're very small and something, something etching on the chip, something, something, pack more stuff onto the chip. So Yeah, that's about right. (laughs) (laughs) What they are is they are devices that perform all the functions that you want with electrical things. They store data, they add numbers together, they multiply numbers together, they can amplify signals, they can do things like, you know, change of voltage from, you know, X amount of, you know, volts or amps or whatever. They could do all those sorts of things. Physically, you take a big wafer of silicon and you, you photographically put designs on each chip, and then they're cut up and broken up into little squares or rectangles. The the famous discussion in Silicon Valley is is about Moore's Law. Gordon Moore was the founder Mm -hmm. of Intel. And back when he was at Fairchild Semiconductor, he, he made this prediction about how rapidly companies would essentially shrink the little tiny switching elements called transistors on each chip. And he said they would double very rapidly, like every year or every two years. And that is pretty much held true. So chips are one of the few things in life that have gotten better and better and better and better and better and better. And essentially, each of those little tiny transistors has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. That miniaturization is the reason we have many products we take for granted today personal computer, a smartphone, a, a smart device that, that you talk to in your home, a car, all kinds of devices in the car are now all about chips, your infotainment system, your lane warning machines are all chips. I mean, the average car now has more than a thousand chips in it. They're everywhere, essentially. You know, your light switch, your light bulb. My light bulb? LED light bulbs are based on a semiconductor called gallium nitride, which which is a is not the conventional. It is basically a chip. Wow. My espresso machine, my you know my dishwasher, you know they've all got chips. And this was one of the reasons why during COVID, the chip supply chain is mm-hmm. incredibly geographically dispersed. You know, the, the average chip might cross the national border seventy times before it actually reaches the final destination, because there's all these different players 
involved and they go, they, they get fabricated in one plant and packaged in another plant and tested in another plant and, and shipped to a distributor. And, you know, so it, the, the supply chain is incredibly complicated and a lot of it is in China. The U.S. is certainly not lagging when it comes to inventing new and advanced chips. In fact, chip designers in the U.S. account for more than 50% of all semiconductor revenue globally. The issue is in the manufacturing. In 1990, the U.S. made 37% of the world's chips. 30 years later, that number has cratered to 12%. While the country might design some of the most advanced chips in the world, almost all the manufacturing takes place in foreign countries. So... What happened, it's it's a complicated story, and it's not anything like, oh, we moved to Asia for cheap labor. That's just not the way it, it happened. Basically, what first started happening is companies in Japan, particularly, started making chips. They made them and designed them. Mm-hmm. So in the 80s, they started making particularly memory chips, which are, are one of the most widely used chips um, around. And then Korea got into it. Remember that the fabrication of semiconductors is not a game about cheap labor. It's about big expenditures on very expensive machines. Now the factories cost, you know, say $10 billion each, and some of the individual machines cost $200 million. And they have, you know, uh, hundreds of these machines in some of these factories. So it's a game about money, not about labor. Perhaps the biggest reason for why U.S. manufacturing of chips has fallen is because of one man, Morris Chang. Born in China, Chang came to the U.S. where he spent 25 years working at Texas Instruments, one of the oldest semiconductor makers in the country. You may also know them for their fancy calculators. Up until the 80s, most semiconductor makers, companies like Texas Instruments, IBM, Intel, designed and manufactured their own chips in their own factories. But Chang saw an opportunity to cut costs and get more efficient. In the late 80s, he left Texas Instruments and, with the full support of the Taiwanese government, Chang helped found Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC. Basically, TSMC makes chips that other companies design. TSMC is now the most important semiconductor manufacturer in the world, producing advanced chips for companies like NVIDIA, Apple, and even Amazon. And what happened is he was just more and more successful at it. So the 37% to 12% figure is not really the alarming part as much as the fact that the most advanced chips, his company, TSMC, um, produces more than 90% of the, the advanced chips, the uh-huh. things that you really care about. For example, an Apple iPhone always uses the most advanced TSMC process. They go immediately to the most advanced technology, and TSMC is the only company in the world that can make it. That's the alarming factor, because actually companies like NVIDIA, which a hugely impressive company, has never owned a factory. Qualcomm has never owned Mm -hmm. a factory. All these big companies, but they've always relied on TSMC and some other companies that operate that kind of a service. We should say TSMC and Morris Chang built it in Taiwan. He didn't build it, you know, in the U.S., and that's sort of like the crux of the issue, because Taiwan, though friendly to us, has this fraught relationship with China, and, and this is the whole, this is the meat of it. This is, this is exactly the problem, or the, you know, it's the potential risk. Yeah. He founded the industry in Taiwan. He's very close to the government. He's now like an almost like a government ambassador. They have agreed to build factories in Arizona. They recently 
um, stepped up their investment to $40 billion in Arizona, and they expect, expect to get money under the CHIPS Act to help do that. They have a big factory already in, under construction in north, um, north of Phoenix. They realize you know, it's it's just for them. It's 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 sort of good to be close to the customers. It's that's why Toyota has a, a factories in the U.S. Why VW you know builds in North America. It's sort of there's a long term trend to be close to your customers, but but there is a you know added incentive with all this attention. If you're Apple, you want TSMC making chips in Arizona, right? Although then they would have to send the chips to China to assemble the phones. What happens with chips, even the chips that the Intel makes in Oregon or Arizona, they're sent to Asia usually to be packaged mm-hmm. and tested. That's mm-hmm. just kind of historically the way that happened. And that's originally because that part of the business, the packaging and testing, is labor intensive. So that's why, um, you know, start the U.S. chip makers started having assembly and test operations in, in Asia starting in the like the... Um, the 1970s. Right. That is another problem for the U.S. that all assembly is happens abroad. When we come back, will all that money the government is putting towards chips actually make a difference? Hey, everybody. It's Neil. I've got some huge news. Decoder is moving to Mondays and Thursdays. We're adding a second episode of the show. On Mondays, we'll have our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers. I think we're going to have to start having conversations about how do we pay those jobs that can't be done by AI. And on Thursdays, we'll be explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. There's a new generation of people on the internet. Google search has always sucked for them. So, you know, there's no reason for them to be loyal. They can just go to TikTok. This is going to be really fun. I'm very excited about all this. So go subscribe wherever you get your podcasts now. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So all this domestic chip production is being encouraged now. The CHIPS Act was passed. TSMC is going to build a factory and spend billions of dollars. Then I'm reading in the Times that all of this will boost U.S. production of chips from 12% to 14%, which seems lame. That's a little uh, pessimistic. That's, okay. that's, that's, that's not including the tax credits, you know, the, the last $25 billion. But... The 12% figure mm-hmm. is not the important figure. 
What's the important figure is the 95% of advanced chips now come from Taiwan. If we we get 20% of the advanced chips made in America, that would be a huge thing because we just, you know, it's those are the ones, those are the really uh, important uh, chips in this discussion. And what's the barrier there? Is is that 95% number going to shrink a little because of... Yeah, I mean, if, 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 if TSMC builds its factories here in America... That's probably the most important single thing that will that will make that figure go down. But you have uh, other players are like Samsung, which is the other big foundry service company. They mostly build almost all in South Korea. They're building. They have already have a factory in uh, in in Austin, Texas. But they're putting seventeen billion dollars into a new factory in in Texas too. Intel, which used to lead in the advanced chip production, but has fallen behind in the past five years. They are spending heavily to catch up in the race, so that's another you know factor that's going to you know reduce that that ninety five percent figure down. And is the scare about the ninety five percent figure mostly coming from that COVID supply chain shock where we couldn't get the chips shipped to where they needed to be, or is there a bigger national security concern with Taiwan dominating the manufacture of these of the highest highest end chips. I would say that the supply chain issues galvanized politicians. But before that was happening, the Pentagon has always worried about where the chips have come from. Mm-hmm. You know, they've established this program, you know, 30 years ago to have trusted foundries that were so you you know, they you have chips chip factories with armed guards around them, you know, and all these procedures. You know, IBM was the biggest uh, chip foundry under that program and its business now is operated by global foundries. On the more strategic level, a lot of the, the concern is from the, from the, the uh, you know, advanced weapons systems. I mean, the U.S. wants to have its weapons be the smartest in the world. And by and large, they are. I mean, so we have, we've always had more chips and more advanced chips than any other company. That's sort of the lever that has always been there. But the kind of political momentum behind the whole thing, which got, you know, politicians really helped push them, you know, besides the Taiwan issue was the labor, you know, car factory shutting down. I can't get my dishwasher, all that stuff that played into the psychology of, of the whole thing. It's my understanding that you need a really highly skilled labor force to manufacture these chips. And there's worry that the U.S., we don't have those workers. Is that going to be a hindrance here? Uh, very likely it will be. There's kind of two classes of workers that are important. You know, they're the actual people in the bunny suits running the machines in the factories. And they usually have like a two-year community college or degree. They're not like rocket scientists, but there's a whole bunch of other people who are much closer to rocket scientists. We need PhDs in all kinds of disciplines. A lot of this is a chemical engineering process all the things you do on wafers, but you need electrical engineers, chemical engineers, material scientists, all these people to keep the advancing miniaturization and all the things you need to do in chips, you know, the search for new materials to make chips out of all that kind of stuff. And America, you know, I think they say something like two thirds of the PhD candidates in the disciplines that matter are foreign born now. Since the Trump administration, it's been very hard for those people to stay in the U.S. after they get their PhDs. There's been lots of efforts to put more money into making our 
educational institutions stronger and hiring and graduating more people. At the same time, there's the immigration issue, which is this political football in Washington that smart people have been arguing about this for years, but it's very hard to politically get immigration relaxed. I mean, there's always people said, oh, you should get a, a green card stapled to your, to your diploma has been the line that the chip industry uses. We are essentially shooting ourselves in the foot by sending these people home, where among other things, they start building chips in other countries. Many of them are Chinese and many of them go back to China. It's a huge headwind for this whole effort. Underlying all this is the tension between the U.S. and China. The U.S. government fears that if China is able to get its hands on the most advanced chips, it'll make the tech race between the countries even more competitive, especially given China's aggressive push into AI and surveillance. Let's talk a little bit more about China. I know the U.S. placed pretty strict sanctions on China um, and kind of crippled its ability to make the more or get a hold of the more sophisticated chips. Can you explain what happened there with those sanctions? Well, you just described the two. There's two poles of this. One mm -hmm. is to stop them from buying the most advanced chips. So we've put restrictions on companies like Huawei, which is a huge force in the world of, of communications. They're, they're, they're sort of national champion electronics company. So we've hobbled them by limiting their ability to buy advanced chips. At the same time, China has an indigenous semiconductor industry. They're They're like... 10 years behind, but but they are making many of the simple chips that people use. We've basically, we're trying to freeze them in place. We used to say it's okay if China was basically two generations behind in chip manufacturing technology. These mm -hmm. latest sanctions, which came out in October of 2022, are, are saying, no, no, we're not going to keep them two years behind. We're going to like freeze them at about 2018. We're just going to say, we're not going to allow them to get the machines that allow them to, get, to progress beyond that. And it's a pretty radical step up in U.S. policy. We have no idea how China is going to respond, um, but I think they will respond in some way we're not going to like at some point. China is one of the biggest buyer of chips in the world, right? Like if you take these kinds of actions or put these sanctions in place, couldn't they retaliate by stepping back? their purchasing power or well, it's, it's, it's the trouble or? is, is, you know, let's say they want to make a smartphone. Mm -hmm. You can't make an advanced smartphone without a chip that comes from someplace else. So do they want to shoot themselves in the foot by making those smartphones? Well, we depend on China for them to make stuff for us, you know, all kinds of stuff. They depend on other countries to make them chips. So they are dependent. I mean, they, they, they cannot get away from buying certain kinds of chips if they want to do surveillance of, of their people, if they want to build supercomputers, if they want to do AI, which they're big in, they need chips that are made by foreign companies. It's kind of hard for them to, to do a, a purchasing boycott <laughs> in chips. It just seems like that there's been all this political angst about, about chips and worries about the United States falling behind. But talking to you, I sort of feel like we actually have quite a lot of leverage and are a huge player in the market that maybe a lot of this is overblown. Well, it's, it's, you know, you listen to Morris Chang talk and he says, we've built up this really efficient supply chain where everything is built in the most efficient place for, for it to be built. Now, mm -hmm. because of geopolitical concerns, 
it's like almost like we're going to re- we have a big thing in Asia where we're kind of re- replicate that supply chain in, in the U.S. Replicate that supply chain in Europe because they're also paranoid. So it's not the most efficient way to organize the world economy. There's no doubt about it. You've heard of the expression "just in time manufacturing." Of course. One of the phrases, the catchphrases that came up during COVID is, we're going from just-in-time manufacturing to just-in-case manufacturing. Mm. We do not want to be disrupted or dependent on foreign sources for something that's really critical. You know, So the race to put more factories in America, it's not about, if you're Intel, putting more factories in America in particular doesn't help you more than putting them someplace else. It's about this broader sort of geopolitical concern. It kind of reminds me of of energy, of oil. I'm, you know, when I was growing up, everyone was like, America doesn't make enough oil. We got to have the oil. If we don't have the oil, we're going to fall behind. And now we actually, we, we drill a lot of oil. <laughs> and that probably has protected us. Well, I mean, um, in the 80s, I think it was first said when the first um, concerns about Japanese competition and memory chips arose. Memory chips were destri- described as, quote, the crude oil of the information age. <laughs> you know, so, so it's not a new metaphor. Don, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Don Clark covers the semiconductor industry. And that is it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Jonathan Fisher and Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.